listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 12, season 2 of Ohio v. The World, and today we're going to be talking about Ohio versus the 60s. And also, congratulations to us. We were named the third best podcast in Central Ohio by the uh, thousands of voters on Columbus Alive's Best of Columbus 2018. So thank you so much for voting. It's awesome that we made it. We're going to sit down with, with two amazing historians, uh, one is David Steigerwald, professor of history at The Ohio State University. You might remember him. He joined us last season on episode 12, coincidentally, for Ohio versus the Nazis, uh, the Jesse Owens episode that's really one of my favorite ones we've ever done. Go back and check that out. Uh, and David joins us again today to talk about the 1960s, not just here in Columbus and in Ohio, but around the country. Um, also joining us at the same time will be Bill Shakurdi. Bill is an author and professor at the John Glenn School here at The Ohio State University. Um, and he's the author of, the, of a great book called Ohio State University in the 1960s, The Unraveling of the Old Order. And that's what we'll be talking about today. You know, just last week we had the, the March for Our Lives protests around the country, students hitting the streets, hundreds of thousands in New York and Washington, I think something like six to 8,000 even here in Columbus, uh, protesting for, for common sense gun, gun control, um, among other issues, but mostly focusing on that. But we're seeing more and more protests in this kind of ideal of the 1960s of taking to the street to get what you want against the establishment is starting to come back into style. And we're going to talk about Columbus and Ohio State a lot in the 1960s because it really is a microcosm of what was going on across the country in the 1960s as really the world changed, a sea change among its people as we really came crashing towards a near revolution. And we'll take from the beginning of the 60s, the innocent protests at Ohio State and across the country, all the way until the school shuts down on May 6, 1970, in the aftermath of the Kent State shootings. We're going to talk about those 10 years, some of the most exciting times, some of the saddest times in this country's history. But definitely it's something that we've been looking forward to talking about. And we're going to be joined by Bill and David at the same time. And this will be a different episode where really we try and stay out of the way. Because we had a great conversation for well over an hour and a half. Um, and there's so much stuff that we had to cut that I even wanted to use. So it'll really just be a discussion with Bill and David uh, talking about the 1960s. And we'll follow it almost chronologically. Our beer for the episode, guys, we're going to be going back to our friends here in Columbus, Land Grant, landgrantbrewing.com. Check out their awesome tap room uh, in, in Franklinton. I know we've done a bunch of their beers, but we're going to drink in the spring quarter today. It's a seasonal. It's out now. Six and a half percent of Belgian blonde, uh, kind of a honey, honey blossom, orange honey blossom, they call it. Um, really good beer, really refreshing summer beer. Um, you know, their description talks about, you know, just when it, hits 60 degrees and you put on your flip-flops here in the Midwest. Um, 
Again, really cool beer. They have their own podcast called Beers with the Brewers, Land Grant University, uh, where they talk about their beers and, and have a good time. Walt, um, our friend Julie Keys, um, Walt was on the show actually on episode five this year, dropping some knowledge on us on our Ohio versus impeachment episode. Um, and again, great place, great, great guys over there. Uh, and check out their spring quarter beer. Uh, they all went to Ohio State. Um, and that's really what this beer is about, a spring quarter. And we're going to be talking about a lot about spring quarter in 1970 at the Ohio State University and campuses across the country. So again, Land Grant, uh, landgrantbrewing.com. Check them out. I want to thank them. They gave us a really cool package for uh, and a fundraiser I threw last week for Choices, a local domestic violence shelter, um, and our Voices for Choices party that we have every year at the Walrus, downtown Columbus. Went great, and they gave us a really cool silent auction basket. Uh, and thanks to Land Grant and Jackie over there for taking care of that. Before we get started, a couple quick announcements. A lot of exciting stuff going on. Uh, we've only got four episodes counting today, really three after this. Um, and the last episode will be a live episode because we will be at the Columbus Podcast Festival. Um, check them out, Columbus Podfest on Twitter. Um, and that's from May 10th to May 13th. The lineup's being announced now. Tickets will be available. We really need you guys to come and check out our live show. It looks like it'll probably be on Sunday, May 13th. It's at the Short North Stage in, in Columbus. Um, we'll get you times, ticket details in the upcoming episodes. But again, that's May 10th through the 13th, where we'll actually record our final episode, episode 15 of the season. Uh, the subject of that one's kind of a, a secret. But we've got uh, two other episodes before that. So really, we're winding down here, and we won't be back until the fall. So uh, soak up these episodes, and, and thank you guys so much for listening. Again, we'll be at the Columbus Podcast Festival. Uh, you can follow them on Twitter, Columbus Podfest, and just stay, you know, stay in touch with our Facebook, uh, our Instagram. We'll get you info on how to get uh, tickets to come see us do a live performance for our last show of the season. Also, don't forget our friends at the Rust Belt Takeover, the Young Ohio Preservationists. Uh, find them on Facebook, Rust Belt Takeover of Columbus. Their event here at the end of the month, 27th of April, the 29th. Their Sunday tours um, of all the historic you know, sites they're going to go to here in Columbus are already sold out. Um, but Friday and Saturday still has events that you can do. Um, and that's our friend Sarah Marsum. She was on the show a couple episodes ago. We'll have an interview with her in our next episode. Um, but they're really booking up fast. Again, Facebook, it's Rust Belt Takeover of Columbus, or look up just the YOP, the Young Ohio Preservationalists on Facebook, uh, and get yourself into a couple of those walking tours or other tours that they'll be doing or lectures. It should be a really cool event. But enough with the announcements. We've got so much to get into, so we'll get started. It's Ohio versus 60s. We're with David Steigerwald and Bill Shakurdy from The Ohio State University, and we're going to be talking about that entire decade, how Ohio and Ohio State University were a microcosm for the sea change of events that took place from 1961 to 1970 here in the United States. It's episode 12, Ohio versus 60s. Following World War II, there's a massive increase in birth rates in the United States. The baby boomers, as they're called. It's these same baby boomers that would be the activists and hippies and conservatives and other, 
other different political entities during the 1960s. We asked Bill and we asked David, uh, and David first, what is it about this generation that made them so different? Because the 1950s were so much different from the 1960s. What was it about the baby boomers and that generation, to loosely use that term, the baby boom generation, is such a broad gap, as David pointed out. But what was it that made them different? This group of people were born and raised uh, in the midst of the most affluent society ever. And that's the first thing that has to be understood about them. Because we're talking in, in broad brushes, we have to remember that there were large sections of that generation that weren't uh, born in affluence. But even the, the, except for the most marginal societies, rural African Americans, uh, Native Americans particularly, even the urban poor uh, um, had some of that affluence dribbling around them. Uh, refrigerators in, in the home, televisions were universal in, in cities. So those uh, small markers of material well-being really genuinely were widespread. It's a kind of cold calculus when you start talking about poor folks uh, not being so poor because they had a television. But, you know, uh, if you think broadly about these things, and I mean broadly historically, then you you do have to see some material well-being being very widely distributed. So that's the first thing about them. The, the second thing was that they, because of that affluence, were raised in the profusion of what back then was called mass culture. Um, Mass-produced music that was marketed directly to them in the form of rock and roll through transistor radios and um, other hi-fi equipment for the, the real music snobs. Um, and, of course, television was a defining element in that particular group of people. And they were the first generation, if that's what we're going to call them, to have been raised on television. you got to be, I, I agree with him, you can't just paint a broad brush. They aren't a bunch of chickens. You had conservatives, you had liberals, you had people that weren't political. But the, one of the things that made this generation, I think, unique, in addition to affluence, is we were told, and I was born in 1946, so that puts me as the leading edge of that group from the time we were born and especially once we got into school we were told we were the biggest generation ever we were the wealthiest generation ever we were the smartest and best education educated generation ever and great things were expected of us so by the time we got to college we kind of had a chip on our shoulder and we're ready to challenge the establishment because we saw all this affluence but we saw also gaps in American society between what it professed to be and what it was. So a lot of the energy that made the 60s unique came out of elements of that baby boom, although not everybody was on the same page. There was a core of people, particularly at, at the nation's universities, that really kind of gave that a push and really challenged the existing post-World War II order. In the beginning of the 1960s, we talked with, uh, talk with Bill Shakurdy about some of the protests that were happening then were much less serious. The Vietnam War hadn't taken off. Kennedy had just beaten Nixon in a close election. But things did not really ratchet up until much later in the decade. Now, the civil rights protests were taking place in the South in the early 60s, um, and students would get behind those movements, even here in, in, in Columbus, uh, in Cleveland, and Cincinnati, later in the 60s. But we talked to, to Bill just about things like the Rose Bowl protests in 1961, um, when Ohio State's 
uh, faculty decided that the football team would not accept a Rose Bowl berth. Um, or, or things like the, uh, the jaywalking protests, the jaywalking riots uh, a couple years later. We asked Bill just about the early 60s protests and how they were so markedly different and almost, almost lighthearted compared to the stuff we'll get into later in the episode. Well, it's interesting because like, like many of the things of the 60s, it's a period of contradictions. What appeared to be going on on the surface and what was going on under the surface were two different things. So when you talk about protests in the early 60s at Ohio State, what comes to most people's mind is the Rose Bowl protests in the fall of 61, where the faculty, this would be un, inconceivable today, <laughs> but then the faculty voted not to accept the Rose Bowl invitation, and a bunch of students got together on the Oval, maybe one or 2,000 of them, marched downtown, looked for the governor. He wasn't home, so they marched back up, destroyed some street signs, marched around for a while, and that was, that was the so-called Rose Bowl riots. Then two years later, the Columbus police, in what to me was an inexplicable move, drove up to a sorority house and found a student who had not paid a jaywalking ticket and took her off to jail. And through a, since nobody was hurt, it really is a comedy of errors. This blew up into a major episode. The next day, there were anti-jaywalking demonstrations, and students blocked High Street, and they blocked uh, buses and, and that Cl- kind of thing. I think they even climbed on some cars, you wrote. Yeah, there was. And there were some cars damaged, but nobody was seriously hurt. So those are the two, that's what people associate with it. What a lot of people don't realize is under the surface, there was already a lot of activism. The president of the student body threatened to lead a protest on the Oval personally, the president of the student senate, if the university didn't get rid of mandatory ROTC, which a a lot of students were supportive. That happened in the spring of 1961. Uh, You also had some speakers protest against the so-called speakers rule uh, in 61, 62, and then a big one in the spring of 65. And then in 63, in the fall of 63, you had the first sit-ins on behalf of civil rights. So there was a lot of student activism. The interesting part is, though, that the disorderly conduct was primarily those two, the Rose Bowl and the uh, jaywalking things, and even that was mild compared to what happened later. The political protests were very uh, nonviolent, not property destructive, very disciplined and that kind of thing. That, of course, all changed later in the decade. Being a woman in the early 1960s, not a lot had changed since the 1940s and 50s. We talked with with Bill and David about some of the crazy rules that female college students had to follow. Uh, you couldn't be alone in a boy's room. You, you, know, you couldn't even stay. There's just so many crazy rules about what they're allowed to wear. Um, women were treated differently. Women were treated uh, as lower class citizens and had many more rules many more risks for any kind of sexual behavior. And we talked with, with Bill first um, just about, those, about those, uh, those gender roles and how difficult it was for a woman under the scrutiny of chaperones at a place like Ohio State in the early 1960s. Broadly, the uh, American universities recognized a um, fuzzy legal doctrine called in loco parentis, or in the absence of parents, and that, they assumed, gave them the a legal privilege to regulate individual behavior, private behavior, down to what clothes could be worn, um, whom you could have in your dorm room, uh, curfews were part of that. It was an onerous extension of 
university authority into really into private lives in ways that we couldn't even conceive right now. But these were broadly uh, established across the country and, and nobody had really challenged in local perennis in the courts. So it was more custom than it was, uh, it certainly wasn't a statutory uh, law. Um, and, and, and so it had to be challenged. It was one of those things that turned out to be incredibly brittle once people began to challenge it. Uh, but that, that yielded all kinds of bizarre regulations on student behavior. And the funny part about it, or funny in an ironical sense, is the university's attitude, particularly in, in sexual behavior between men and women, was that if they locked up the women, then that would keep the men from getting in trouble. So there are all these rules that applied to women, but not the men. For example, there's something called the apartment rule, which is if you were a woman, you were not allowed in a man's apartment without a university-approved chaperone. Who, who were these chaperones? I mean, were they... Well, it's chaperones. Would, students, no, it would be like uh, staff. If you had a social function, you had to have a university-approved chaperone, and the poor dorm director or people <laughs> like that always got stuck doing that. Um, there was also a rule called the uh, motel rule. You could not, if you were a woman, stay overnight in a motel with anyone other than your parents within 20 miles of the university. And if you got caught, you got thrown out. Uh, there were dress rules. Um, I have a lot of fun when I talk to undergraduates at OSU, I have a picture that appeared in the Lantern in the fall of 1960, and they did it every year, and it was to show women what the appropriate dress was. And it was, it was done both to show women what appropriate dress was and to encourage faculty that if one, a woman wasn't dressed that way, not to admit her to class. And I, there are three women in the picture, and only one of them is appropriately dressed. So I show the picture to today's students, and I say, okay, which one of these three women is Because they all look very conservatively <laughs> dressed. And they're stumped. They cannot figure out what it is. And it turns out it's the one woman who's wearing a skirt. It's a kind of a dorky skirt, but that's acceptable. The woman wearing slacks and the woman wearing Bermuda shorts, not acceptable, and couldn't get in class in that day. Yeah, that, pants were a no-go. Pants were a no-go. If I could throw in something else. So there was a, a really terrific scandal in 1968, um, March of 1968, in New York City, when a, um, a Barnard co-ed named uh, Linda LeClaire, great, great media <laughs> name, right, got caught. Um, she, she gave an interview to the New York Times for a story about Barnard women who were shacking up with boyfriends against the Barnard rules which uh, forbade independent living. You either had to live with your family, if they were in New York City, or you had to live in the dorms, right? Couldn't live on your own. And about a half dozen women admitted to flouting the rules, and um, LeClaire was the only one who would admit it, uh, or admit to the newspaper what her name was, right? The others uh, uh, were anonymous in the story. And so she came under the... Uh, uh, scrutiny of the university authorities and they brought her up on a student trial. It was all over the New York papers. Um, imagine, there's a 21-year-old kid who's being raked across the New York media um, uh, uh, environment for living with her boyfriend. It's astonishing today. Well, so they put her up on, on trial in front of a student court and she was found guilty and sentenced to one month without um, 
dining hall privileges and everyone cracked up because they knew that was just a joke you know she she'd actually get to eat at restaurants and stuff in, in the crappy dorms yeah. and so the president uh, of barnard a woman named martha peterson um took it on her own to to uh to discipline leclerc and she did so in part because she was under enormous pressure from barnard um alums and through the media uh, generally, including um, Northeastern conservatives, not the least of which included William F. Buckley, who denounced this poor young girl in the pages of the National Review mm -hmm. as a slut. Yeah. Can you imagine? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the atmosphere uh, that, that, that remained as late as 1968. And the yeah, crazy is. thing about yeah. it is that a month later, Columbia was going up in, in yeah. tatters. You yeah. know? Um, <laughs> a really serious protest. David Steigerwald, awesome uh, history professor, 20th century history professor at, at The Ohio State University. He joined us on our 12th episode last year, um, Ohio versus the Nazis. We talked about Jesse Owens and the rise of, of Hitler in Nazi Germany in the 1936 Olympics. But we talked a lot about Jesse Owens in Columbus in the early 30s and how he couldn't live on campus, all these different, uh, just, you know, northern segregation. People think that, you know, Jim Crow was just in the south. It's just not true. In a place like Columbus, that was even more so. But what was remarkable to me, and as we talked to David about it first, is how little had changed in the 30 years since David and I had last spoke about Columbus in the early to mid-1930s to now Columbus in the early 1960s for African Americans, for students, and their life on campus. Yeah, very little. Um, Bill can, can repeat the numbers, knows the numbers much better than I, but uh, there couldn't have been uh, but a handful of African American faculty members uh, even fewer administrators, uh, uh, people in administration, um, and the uh, African percentage of the student body that was African American was was tiny. Um, they were discriminated against in off-campus housing, and and generally it was a forbidding territory. Columbus was a cow town, was really a cow town uh, back then, and I think quite clearly one of the effects of that, or one of the expressions of that backwardness, that provincialism was the the um, the lack of progress on racial matters builds mm -hmm. a better suited to speak to the specifics you had you know you had uh, as opposed to the south where segregation was by law the challenge in the north was what was called de facto segregation which is by practice rather than by law up until 1957, the university actually had segregated dormitories, but the passage of that civil rights bill in the Eisenhower administration, the university finally moved to desegregated dormitories. But black students will tell you in the 60s it was almost impossible to find housing. A lot of students lived in rooming houses or apartments around campus. And if you were black, it was, uh, and there, there are stories about different groups of black and white students would send a white student in to rent a place. They were told it's available. And then a black student would come in. They'd be told it's not available. And the students pushed on the university. And finally, in the spring of 1969, got the university to adopt a policy that it wouldn't approve housing if uh, the owner of the housing discriminated. So it took a whole decade just to make that change. You also had um, 
the number of senior black administrators throughout until the very end of the 60s was zero. And then you had one or two. Um, you had the faculty had to be just a handful. There was no count of them. Uh, about two to three percent. There were no official numbers till after the Civil Rights Act passed. But my best guess is maybe two to three percent of OSU's population was African American at a time when the state's population was 89 percent. following the disastrous assassination of John F. Kennedy, November 22nd, 1963. The enrollment as these baby boomers began to flood America's schools and change campuses almost in instantly. At Ohio State in the late 1950s, there were about 22,000 total students. That includes, you know, uh, undergrads and, and the other smaller satellite campuses, um, and postgraduate students. By 1970, we're looking at 50,000 people at Ohio State, a more than 100% increase. And that's happening at schools all over the country. And we look at this is when the protests really began. They really started at places like Columbus and Madison and really in Berkeley, California, UC Berkeley, and San Francisco was really the start of that. In 1964, these free speech movements really developed, and we'll talk about them in Berkeley, where it really begins the student protest movement, and also at Ohio State, something called the Speaker's Rule. Um, we're going to talk to David about how did the protest really start in 1964 at UC Berkeley. Following David, we'll hear from, from a student radical leader, Mario Savio, in his famous speech in 1964, as he speaks to thousands of fellow protesters at UC Berkeley. They're talking about the free speech movement, Mario Savio's famous speech about the machine. We'll hear from David. We'll hear that speech from Mario. Uh, It's a speech that David plays to all of his classes, his 1960s classes at The Ohio State University. The free speech movement began at Berkeley in the fall of... 1964 when the term started actually so it was very early in September when um, students came back from summer break uh, 65 of whom had been in the south trying to register voters as part of Freedom Summer some of them had been in Louisiana others in Mississippi a couple a smattering in Georgia uh, they returned to campus to discover that the university had pulled a kind of quick one on, on everyone. Um, at the, at, on Telegraph Avenue, at the main entrance gate to the campus, is a, um, an intersection that had long been considered the place for political speech and political organizing. In the 1930s, the, the administration uh, passed a rule that you couldn't do those things freely on campus. You had to move off campus. So that strip, as they called it, was uh, the place where people engaged in in their First Amendment rights rather than on campus. Um, And over the summer, the university apparently purchased it from the city of Berkeley and then just shut it down. I mean, as soon as they claimed property, it claimed ownership of the property, they, they, by extension, the law against politicking covered that area. 
So students had been um, energized, I think, by the 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 percolating politics of the of '63 and '64, and particularly civil rights, and came back to what seemed like a stifling of their of their activity and of their aspirations for activity. So immediately, the uh, the students began to organize, and it was a pretty broad-based group of people that included. Uh, Bettina Apthecker, who was a member of the Communist Party at that point because her father was one of the most famous uh, Marxist scholars in the country, a historian long known to have been a party member in the 30s and 40s anyway, and who was still writing um, aggressively anti-capitalist work. But from there, you could go all the way to the right to students for Goldwater. So it was really an issue about the university pressing its its authority on students in this case against their their uh, free speech rights. So the the movement was generated out of that moment. There was an early occupation of Sproul Hall, the main administration building, that uh, out of which um, some students were arrested, uh, several were disciplined, uh, and actually it was the discipline cases that lasted all through the fall that eventually. Um, became the cause celebrate of the whole of the whole moment, but in the in the meantime there was an incident where um, a, a sometime grad student uh, was decided he was going to challenge the on campus rule and he put a a, a political message on a uh, you know those kind of sandwich boards you know front back sort of thing you see uh, in old time advertisements. And um, the university had him arrested, so a Berkeley uh, squad car pulled up at that intersection, that now infamous intersection, and uh, arrested this guy, Jack Weinberg, who was famous for having um, invented the, the famous 60s credo, don't trust anyone over 30. Well, they, they, they put him in the back of the, uh, the patrol car, and a bunch of students began to mill around it, and just kind of engulf it. And they they held the policeman in there in the car. Well, they, they held the car hostage is what they really did for um, more than 32 hours, so the better part of two days. They, they just held them there. Weinberg sitting in the back. They let the policeman go to the bathroom, go get something to eat. And when you see pictures of the cops, they're just having a good time. It's, you know, they don't have to go back to the squad house. They're, they're, they're you know, talking to the co-eds. They're, they're having fun. They're, they're always smiling. So, you know, it was, it was certainly not a tense situation. Uh, imagine today there'd be a SWAT team there in, in 35 seconds. But the students, in the meantime, used the car as a podium for speech making. And uh, one of the students who took his shoes off so he wouldn't scratch the hood of the car and climbed up on the top was Mario Savio, a, a Southern Californian son of uh, Italian immigrants um, and a philosophy major, a really bright guy, um, who essentially established himself as the, the leading spokesman for the FSM because of his, um, his unbridled willingness to speak his mind and, um, and the, the energy with which he could do so. He, was, he had a speech impediment, right? And so one-on-one, um, -on -one, he wasn't very um, articulate, but speaking in public gave him 
uh, kind of liberated him up, right? And so, um, so he had practiced actually defeating the the disability by through public speaking, and so he had a he had a certain training, if not a gift, in that. You can tell in that famous speech, which he delivered on December fourth uh, on the steps of Sproul Hall before the second and the much nastier, much larger occupation of the administration building. If you listen to it, you can hear him stumbling through his words. So um, what seemed like just frothing anger was actually him trying to get a hold of his, of his, uh, his stuttering. And the answer we received from a well-meaning liberal was the following. He said, would you ever imagine the manager of a firm making a statement publicly in opposition to his board of directors? That's the answer. Well, I ask you to consider if this is a firm, and if the Board of Regents are the Board of Directors, and if President Kerr, in fact, is the manager, then I tell you something, the faculty are a bunch of employees, and we're the raw materials, but we're a bunch of raw materials that don't mean to be, have any process upon us, don't mean to be made into any product, don't mean, don't mean to end up being bought by some clients of the university, be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. To me, that speech ably summed up the sense of um, crimped lives that the baby boomers, at least the idealistic and politically oriented ones, were feeling the pressure from from expectations to conform, the the assumption that they were going to get their degree at Berkeley and walk into a suit and tie kind of job, a cubicle, you know, uh, that they were going to going to give their lives to American to corporate America, if not to the warfare state. And what was the difference, after all, you know, to them? Um, and he caught it all in a really remarkable moment. Um, and if you listen to it closely, you hear the, the outrage against the organization society, you know. Um, let me end with one thing, Alex, and that's that um, I've been playing the clip from, from that speech for probably, well, as long as there's been a YouTube. I don't even remember how long. And I, I have... I long was struck by how today's students just don't get it. And and they just say, you know, this guy had it made. I mean, he was a philosophy major. He was at Berkeley. Uh, back then, tuition was virtually free, right? Uh, and he could walk, he could, he could mess around with Aristotle or Camus and then go get a job at IBM. What's he bitching about? And they are so insecure in their world today that they envy that, that 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 assumed security of the baby boomers, right? Um, and it 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 really had been disheartening. But I'm I'm finding in the last couple of years that more and more students warm up to Savio and they they get him. And I'm feeling like there's something changing among undergraduates right now. The protests in Berkeley sparked another free speech movement here at Ohio State against what was called the Speaker's Rule. 
Novice Chief Fawcett, President Fawcett of Ohio State, ran the school from 1956 to 1972, oversaw all this growth and turbulence. Um, basically, the, the president could, could deny any speaker who, who wanted to come to the university. They could say no. Um, and the students rebelled against this. But our rebellion here for free speech in Columbus and in Ohio, it had kind of a Midwestern, almost nice flair to it in the mid-60s. Um, and we talked to we talked to Bill Shakurdi about the speaker's role at Ohio State and how our protests differed so much from those in Berkeley when it comes to the violence, the police response um, to the free speech movement at, at in a Midwestern university. It had a Midwestern twist it to did. it, but it had some similarities. One of the leaders of the free speech front here, they called themselves the free speech front. It was Dennis Nepley, an honor student. Uh, from Columbus, who gave it that name, which I'm sure spooked the administration after all the Berkeley stuff. But one of the other leaders was a guy named Jeff Schwartz, a graduate of Bexley High School, who had spent Freedom Summer registering voters in Louisiana. And I interviewed him for the book. And he told me that one of the things he learned is when the other side has the guns and all that stuff, you got to keep focused on what it is you're trying to accomplish, not let yourselves become the issue, especially in a conservative community like Columbus. So they started the, uh, the free speech protests here in Columbus. They were very orderly. They did go in and do a sit-in in the administration building, similar to what they did in Berkeley. For more, like more than a day or close to a well, day? Well, the right? first time they did it for a day and then left at closing time. But they said, if nothing changes, we'll be back in a week. And they were back in a week, and they decided to stay after closing time. Now, that's when in Berkeley, uh, they tried to forcibly eject the, the protesters, and there were like 800 arrests or something, or hundreds of California State Highway Patrol and local police. And there were the pictures of, of uh, police dragging unarmed protesters out of the building. What a lot of people forget is a lot of the faculty, and there were some also at OSU, were refugees from Hitler's Europe. And when they saw those pictures, it just set them off. So the protesters got support from the faculty, a lot of the faculty leaders. What the protesters at OSU decided to do is make sure that the focus stayed on the speaker's rule. So the, when they decided to stay overnight in the administration building, they had everybody dress up in coats and ties. And if you see pictures, it's a very, it's not a, a rough, riffraff looking group, very well dressed. The women were welcome to join the protest, but were to go back to their dorms when the curfew was at midnight. Um, when they left the next morning, they cleaned up after themselves. I mean, you read this and, and you think about what happened later in the 60s and it seemed so quaint, but it worked. Now I credit the protesters for keeping their focus on the issue because it really built political pressure on the administration to do something. And I think President Fawcett wanted to make this go away anyway. And what we now know that we didn't know at the time is that Governor Rhodes, even though he ended up being a major protagonist in the, in the Kent State era, in this particular case, worked behind the scenes to get an agreement that everybody could live with. Um, and the administration, to its credit, rather than haul these students out of the administration building. In fact, if you look at pictures, you'll see no indication of armed uniformed police, although I'm sure there were plain close people around. But they kind of let the thing play out. There were no arrests. There was no property damage. And then President Fawcett took a revised rule that he had been working on before then to the Board of Trustees, and then the trustees voted it down. 
During the summer, I think. During right? the summer. So there was all this talk about when school starts again in the fall, this is going to be Berkeley all over again. Well, between that and the last meeting of the board in the summer, which was in September, Fawcett brought the issue back. By then, there was an additional board member who ended up voting for the uh, liberalization of the rule. And one or two of the other board members who had voted against it, who were close to Governor Rhodes, managed to disappear for that meeting. So it flipped from a 4-3-4 vote against to a 4-3 vote or something like that, 4. And they approved the rule, and the rule still stands to today. And the university's never had a problem. Uh, you've had some issues now with the right, the alt-right and the <laughs> nationalists and those people about creating... Um, uh, a public safety problem. But throughout the 60s, you had speakers come and go without issues here at Ohio State. So you had a peaceful resolution to what was not a peaceful resolution at Berkeley. What really amped things up the 1960s, and it's no surprise to our listeners, is the Vietnam War. Following Kennedy's death in 1963, we had 16,000 American troops in Vietnam. By 1967, that number is at 485,000. Think about that. From under 20,000 to half a million, and that number would go over half a million in 1968. Young people are being sent to a war that don't believe in. And they're being sent in record numbers. It's the draft. It's, it's people who, have, who have, you know, were in the National Guard. But half a million Americans, and think about all the people that those half a million Americans know. 55-some thousand Americans would die in the Vietnam War. It touched everybody. And it sent a, just a shockwave through the American colleges at Ohio State and Berkeley, Michigan, other places. We talk with... with David and, and Bill about the early, uh, kind of those early years of the anti-war movement. I mean, all the way through, there were um, a great many elements to it. And uh, to me, the more uh, effective parts of it were non-student parts. Um, even at, at so rambunctious a moment as the Pentagon siege in 1967, there were over 160 different organizations represented in that throng of people. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a, a, an after effect of the attention given to student radicals at the time by the media, which likes radicals, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're more exciting than, than uh, placid liberals, right? Um, we remember the anti-war movement as a student movement when it really wasn't. I, I call that the, uh, the Forrest Gump uh, view of the, of the anti-war movement. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is that um, the anti-war movement included a great many um, Christian organizations mm -hmm. that had had roots in the long tradition of Quakerism, for example. But even more uh, to the to the moment in the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was an organization that that came out of World War One that um, molded itself into a pro-civil rights and pro-Gandhi movement. And so, of course, they, they resisted the war and opposed the war, spoke against it. 
Another very important part of it was the Citizens for Sane Nuclear Policy, uh, which was known just as Sane, and that was just a dead center liberal establishment organization um, that was constantly trying to uh, mitigate what it thought of as the as the unfortunate uh, residues of student radicalism, always trying to keep a distance from from the uh, more boisterous parts of the movement. And it's true that the two most prominent spokesmen, as it were, uh, of saying themselves turned fairly radical, and that was um, Henry Sloan Coffin Jr. and Dr. Spock, uh, not the Star Trek guy, <laughs> Benjamin Spock. Benjamin, yeah. But those guys, you know, felt themselves pushed to the point where they were organizing draft card burnings, and um, and in, in fact ended up going to court. Uh, in the Boston Five case. So they turned far more radical than they'd ever thought that they that they would. And so let's talk a little bit about the the dynamics that that pushed the anti-war movement from uh, a fairly staid one to um, to the boisterous one. And I'd say that there are a couple of main ingredients to that. First of all, it's the war. Uh, and the war for Americans didn't really begin until 1965. Mm -hmm. And that was when Lyndon Johnson, uh, to his, his great regret, uh, Americanized the war and began to introduce very large numbers of American ground troops. Amer the size of the American military endeavor just, uh, just, just ballooned from that point until Johnson left the White House, uh, until early 1969 when Nixon began to withdraw people, mid-1969. So it was the expansion of the war that drove the movement. But attached to that, and I'm, this is 1A, <laughs> uh, att attached to that was that the administration was determined to cast all opponents as proto-commies, as deluded people as um, people who didn't know what they were talking about, just ignorant, you know, emotional people. And the administration from the beginning, from the, the spring of 1965, when, when a, a great many fair-minded people tried to organize teach-ins around the country to, to take a fair airing of the options for foreign policy, of the uh, real um, consequences and the, the the realities. A lot of professors. A lot that. of professors, mm -hmm. including my own mentor, Christopher Lash, who um, was at Iowa at that point, and he he organized the second um, teach-in after the initial one at Michigan, right. and he, um, he he was supposed to debate uh, some guy sent out from the Defense Department, who refused to give the podium up to him, and when when Professor Lash rose to to give his side of the Vietnam story, the guy told him, sit down and shut up, Sonny. That was, the, that was, Lash became one of the great uh, uh, intellectuals of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, yeah, that's, that's the way that the administration was dealing with opponents, that just abrupt, condescending um, uh, refusal to, to hear any other kinds of opinions. So what did people have? I mean, people who felt deeply uh, about the the uh, great mistake that Johnson knew he was getting himself into uh, had no options. Um, and so they hit the streets. 
And so at that point, 65, 66, into 67, um, the younger part of the anti-war movement began to move into what they called resistance. Uh, and that meant being in the streets. So you get expansion, you get more drama, uh, you get flamboyance in, in, in various moments, especially the Pentagon siege of 67. Anti-war demonstrators protest U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War in mass marches, rallies, and demonstrations. Central Park is the starting point for the parade to the U.N. building. The estimated 125,000 Manhattan marchers include students, housewives, beatnik poets, doctors, businessmen, teachers, priests, and nuns. Makeup and costumes were bizarre. Before the parade, mass draft card burning was urged. Demonstrators claimed 200 cards were burned. Protests are going on all over the country. The war, the war rages on with no clear goals, no clear victories. Bravery in the field like you wouldn't believe from Americans and Marines. Our guest Bill Shakurdi served himself, but we talked to Bill and we talked to them about the draft and how the military draft conscription in the Army that changed everything. They call this the Ho Chi Minh effect. One of the things, two things you could use to protect yourself if you were a college student. Prior to 1968, if you stayed in college, you got a draft deferment. So you could go over there during some of the, the most intense period. Then when that started to change, the other thing you could do is if you went on to advanced ROTC as a junior and a senior, you would agree to serve on active duty after you graduated. And therefore, you had some control. You could also delay going to Vietnam. Now, what changed in 68 was the ability of students going on to an advanced degree, a graduate degree, or a law degree to get a deferment. Prior to that, in fact, I was one of the people planning to do that. You do your four years, and then you go to law school or graduate school for another three years. You're 26 or 27, and you get out, and you aren't going to be drafted. And I remember the day I walked down and picked up the lantern in the dorm lobby and read that they had changed that. And the word spread out. It was like panic through the ranks. Because my class, the class of 68, was the first to, to face that. So all of a sudden, the war became a very immediate issue for us. Now, there are a lot of people that say, well, the only reason college students uh, oppose the war is because of the draft. I, I would not subscribe. I, it, it affected it. But again, most college students were deferred. And then even after that, the was a another year and a half until the draft lottery took effect, which also took some of the steam out of the... You know, Bill and David did another uh, podcast. There's an Origins podcast that Ohio State puts out. They talked about 60s protesting and modern protesting. We'll talk. You know, these guys are, in, are with college kids every day, um, and they see differences. In these new, in these younger kids now, um, in their ability to to promote social change, but they have an origins podcast that just came out last month. You really should give it a listen. But in it, you know, David talks about this what he calls suburban homogeneity, um, this this idea of American life and the conformity. You know, these hippies had so many different things that they were fighting against, but one of the main things that they all agreed on was a, just a rejection of modern capitalist society, a modern, you know, of this conformity that is expected of everyone. Um, it's a very 
it's a meta idea, but we talk with, with David and with Bill just about this idea of conformity. And what were these kids really all up in arms about? The, the feeling that American life was structured in such a rigid way and you were supposed to behave in certain ways and you were supposed to defer to all authorities and you were supposed to strive for the things that you were told you were supposed to strive for just came up against a, a commercialized culture that told you everything else told you, hey, um, don't put off marriage, uh, or, or don't put off sex till marriage, uh, you know, go for it. And after, after all, you know, they have this thing called the birth control pill that's coming around, though not until the late 60s. It's another, um, another bit of reality. <laughs> yeah. but, but it was invented in 1960, but, but it, wasn't, it, huge, wasn't, it wasn't until after Griswold in 66 that it was legally available to non-married women right so uh you know it's 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 exaggerated in its um consequence for the 60s as with drugs uh you know becoming increasingly available and having a kind of a kind of a cultural rebel um you know feel to it and people who wanted to to claim that they were rejecting those uh those fine avenues to uh, success and a happy life, um, you know, indulged in marijuana and other things. Um, so what, what was really happening, and this, to me, this is the nub of the 60s, was that you had a society that was structured on highly organized, highly bureaucratized rewards, uh, wealth, uh, status, job um, opportunities, and all of that kind of boiled down into suburbia itself, where people lived in the cookie-cutter houses and so on. Everybody had two cars to take the kids to wherever they to take the four and a half kids to every place they needed to go. Um, right, and, and at the same time, that came crashing up against a, a, um, a commercialized culture that invited rebellion or at least um, individualism that encouraged uh, sexuality, that, um, that encouraged um, spontaneity instead of self-control, uh, ridicule, delayed gratification. And what's really amazing about the moment, and again, to me, this is what makes the 60s the 60s, was how brittle the world of authority actually was that crust uh, that, that, that contained American society, or at least mainstream American society, just cracked, and that's the 60s. So tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. I pledged in my campaign for the presidency to end the war in a way that we could win the peace. I have initiated a plan of action which will enable me to keep that pledge. The more support I can have from the American people, the sooner that pledge can be redeemed. For the more divided we are at home, the less likely the enemy is to negotiate at Paris. 
let us be united for peace. Let us also be united against defeat. Because let us understand, North Vietnam cannot defeat or humiliate the United States. Only Americans can do that. But, you know, Nixon and Kissinger came into, into office having already decided that Vietnam was a, a, was a folly. And uh, not to give them too much credit, but they, had, they were already thinking about ways to demobilize and um, to reinvigorate America's Cold War posture by getting the hell out of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a tricky way of thinking about this, that in, in the end, the anti-war movement was right. But that's not the same as saying that they were politically effective. Well, I, uh, and that was apparent across the country. Opposition to the war really didn't build mainstream until the flag-draped coffins started coming home in greater and greater numbers. That didn't happen until after the troop buildup. In, in 1967 is a pivotal year, I think, when things started to turn. Uh, and then you had it start to build up. I, I would agree with David in part and disagree in part. The part that I would agree with is that the so-called radicals poisoned the air for the anti-war movement. And a lot of people, like my parents, who thought themselves fair-minded, would were turned off by that. A lot of middle-class voters were. Um, I think Nixon and Kissinger were of different... I think they wanted out of the war, but they wanted out of the war on their terms. And Nixon initially thought he could bully North Vietnam. The, the one moment, the shining moment in the anti-war movement were the November 1969 and October 1969 moratorium that was organized by uh, the more moderates and it got middle class housewives and school teachers and OSU sent like 15 buses to Washington that's right, that, yeah. that day. And that start, I think that scared the daylights out of the Nixon administration. So they, they kind of uh, shifted position. The other thing I'd like to say, you know, everybody claimed to speak for the majority of students. <laughs> there was a fascinating referendum that Univac Computer, which really dates it in Time Magazine, did in the spring of 1968. It let students, college students across the country vote on Vietnam War policy. And one of the questions was, do you support the current policy? Do you think we should get out? Do you think we should escalate or withdraw gradually? So it was four options. Um, Only about a third of the students voted, which I found disappointing. But of the third that did, it was fascinating. A small minority, about 15%, wanted out immediately. Another small minority, about 15%, uh, wanted to escalate. And then a very, very small portion, less than 15, I think less than five, supported current policy. So majority of students wanted out gradually, which, of course, is eventually what happened. So the middle kind of came around on this. It was just making the political process work. The big enemy was the pigs, the police, as they called them. Methods changed across the country. We saw... You know, those TV images of the civil rights movement with the tear gas and the water cannons and the dogs and cracking heads, as it was called. We see that at the 1968 Democratic National Convention on live TV in the streets of Chicago. We see it on campuses all over the country. We talk with with Bill um, and Dave about, about policing and how it's changed a little bit since then. But as Bill quotes in his book, you know, Counterculture poet Allen Ginsberg once called Columbus a Hicktown police state as heavy as Prague. This idea of 
of the of the police versus the people and how it went down here in Columbus and across the country. Ginsburg was not alone. There was a former OSU professor named Eric Solomon who left OSU and wrote an article in the Atlantic in 1965. And he said Columbus was the third most repressive city in the country. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, who are one or two? This was written in the spring of 65. So I think it must have been Selma and Birmingham. And then Columbus is the third. And, and Columbus was a repressive atmosphere. Part of it was the the mayor, Jack Sensenbrenner, was a Democrat. In fact, he supported Kennedy in the 1960 convention, but he was very much a law and order guy. The Columbus police were a very uh, predominantly white, very militarized police, as many were back then. Uh, But what really gave an edge that a lot of the more liberal students resented was the role played by the Columbus Dispatch as the evening newspaper who who was extremely conservative even by uh, standards back then and would go after people they claimed were communists and radicals and all that all the time. So he had that atmosphere. And then you had in the in the two earlier student protests we mentioned, the so-called jaywalking riot and the so-called Rose Bowl riot, uh, the Columbus police actually cordoned the area off, but didn't go in and crack heads. So it wasn't that yet. But what students found is if it was a political event, the Columbus police were a lot less tolerant of it. Mm-hmm. And when that really came to a head is in the fall of 67, in the so-called High Street Riot, where a group of students were standing around watching pickets uh, who were striking against the university. And a group of Columbus police in riot gear came swarming from the south side of High Street and started cracking heads. And it is what we would today call a police riot. And that kind of poisoned the atmosphere of that jaywalking business. Columbus police were very aggressive in for enforcing jaywalking. And people always wondered what that was about. And it was, you know, who knows? But you had, <laughs> you had a, a tension between the students and the police. Then it really came out in the spring of 1970. And as I detail in the book, probably what gave the riots their energy was an overreaction by Columbus police and firing tear gas into dorms and fraternities and that kind of thing. And that got middle of the road students off their rear end and and do it. And the telling thing was that the Columbus Department of Public Safety hired a pollster to do a poll to find out what students thought of the Columbus police. And the question was, do you think the police are your friends? Mm -hmm. And for white students, the answer was 30% yes, 70% no, which was not a very good for the police. (laughs) For black students, it was nobody yes, 90 some percent no. And you saw the Columbus police and the safety department begin to change. 71 though, right? November 71, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so they moved to what's called, as did a lot of other uh, police units, including the OSU police, into what's called community policing, where you view the community as your ally and you try to support them rather than the enemy and view them as, as yourself as an army of occupation. So I think in having spent 20 years at the university as an older person, as an administrator, 10 of which university public safety reported to me and we had to work with the Columbus police. It's a whole different world now. And I think they're a lot more sophisticated in how they deal with protests and that kind of thing than they were back then. And they realize the answer isn't cracking, automatically cracking heads because all that does is just fuel the thing more. We're not going to talk a bunch about it today. Our very first episode ever called Ohio versus the Nixon administration, is all about the Kent State shootings on May 4th, 1970. The events that led up to it, that weekend before the invasion of Cambodia, 
protests that ultimately lead to the Monday shooting on May 4th. We're going to talk about why did that happen at Kent State instead of Ohio State. Ohio State, a place where protests were happening on an almost weekly basis, violent protests, property destruction, arrests, um, much more violent things going on in Columbus, um, in other schools even, uh, Cincinnati, other schools. This was happening, Bowling Green, Miami. Kent State was just one of many. Why did that happen at Kent State and not Ohio State? I implore you to go back. It's by far our most listened to episode. I think it's our best episode. It's my first episode. I wish I had gotten better with time, but really I peaked right off the bat. Go back and listen to our very first episode, Ohio versus the Nixon administration, episode one from season one. Um, it's really, really good stuff to learn about the Kent State shooting. But we're going to talk about how did Ohio State not have that kind of singular violent event? It had multiple days of violent events. And how did Ohio State respond to the shootings at Kent State when the school was closed? Ohio State is closed in May 6, uh, 1972, days after the shooting by President Fawcett and the governor make that decision. Well, a lot of, and what a lot of people don't realize, in fact, what I didn't realize until I started writing the book, is the big confrontation between students and police here at OSU was not after Cambodia. It was on the afternoon of Wednesday, April 29th. President Nixon didn't even go on TV till the next day. And it was the culmination of a lot of stuff. Uh, students feeling, being treated as numbers. And uh, black students were among the leaders of the student strike that started on the 29th, along with uh, some of the anti-war people and students who were just unhappy with things in general. Even though you had a bad start at OSU, you never you didn't have anyone killed or seriously wounded. Although hundred people were injured by bullets at one time or another, so it was pretty ugly. You had a lot of cases of arson and everything else. I think part of it was that the National Guard unit that came to Ohio State behaved differently than the National Guard units at Kent. Um, I had the opportunity. He unfortunately has passed away, but I talked to Jim Abraham, who was the commander of the first battalion of National Guardsmen who came on to Ohio State. And uh, he told me, and I was able to verify what he told me through the written record. His battalion was called the Riot Battalion because they had been out a lot uh, in central cities and stuff in 67 and 68 because there had been a lot of riots. So they were fairly well trained in that. And he said what he, he trusted his troops, but he, what he didn't want is some trigger-happy soldier panicking and causing a problem. So the National Guard here at Ohio State had, was under the same uh, orders as was the National Guard at Kent, that they were to have loaded rifles, which is a horrible way to deal with that. But they, they interpreted it differently. So those soldiers, before they went online, would stick a clip into their rifle. That made it loaded. But anyone who knows about a rifle knows that to fire it, you then have to push the charging handle and load around into the chamber. It would be the same as like cocking a, a weapon. And what, what the National Guard commander at Ohio State, among the first troops that came here, said, I don't want anybody chambering around. You keep them in your magazine. You only work on, on order. And he had an officer or a non-commissioned officer check every rifle before his soldiers went out online. Really? I've had students tell me, not, not all of them are in agreement, but I had a large number tell me they had a pecking order of law enforcement when the stuff started. And among the people they disliked the least were the National Guard because they felt they were more laid back and more benign. They didn't like the State Highway Patrol, but they felt they were disciplined. 
They didn't like the Columbus police and felt they were out to get them. And they certainly didn't like the sheriff's department because they felt not only they were out to get them, they were undisciplined and dangerous and reckless. But fortunately, none of those four law enforcement people did anything. So I think that was part of it. Part of it was, although I know there were faculty at Kent State, is it Glenn Frank, the guy yes, that, that's right. yeah, that, that pleaded with those students not to tangle with the National Guard after the shooting? But there were also faculty at Ohio State on the Green Ribbon Committee that stood, I think, at great risk to themselves after the Kent State shootings between the National Guard and the students to try and keep the peace. I also think that President Fawcett and Governor Rhodes made the right decision in closing the university down on May 6th because it was clear after the Kent State confrontation there was bad blood between the students and the Guard and that was going to erupt in some way. Well, I want to just give Bill a shout out about his interview with um, Colonel Abrams. Abrams, yeah. Abramson? Uh, Abrams, Abraham. 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 Mm-hmm. They're both wrong. Um, he solved, to me, the, the great mystery, why Kent State and not here. And we historians owe Bill an, an enormous debt for that. It really is an important thing, and and he deserves a, a, all the credit for that. I agree. Um, yeah, it's really an important thing. And, you know, as I tell people when we get to this point, you know, history sometimes turns on serendipity, mm-hmm. on on a decision that somebody made that somebody else didn't make, and that is what saved lives here, as distinguished from Kent State. Uh, nationwide, it's important to remember that the Kent State um, incident took place in the midst of the largest campus uh, um, surge of campus protests in American history because of the uh, the, the president's announcement that uh, American troops have been put into Cambodia. Uh, that set off uh, in early May, those first few days of May. Um, more than 100 campuses had, had um, large-scale protests and were shut down. So it was a, a Kent State was a wave of, was part of that, that great wave. Ohio State closes on May 6, 1970. For many students, they would not come back that semester. It would open again a few weeks later. Governor uh, Reagan out in California shut down the entire California university system uh, until May 11th. Over 100 uh, schools closed um, for the year, basically, for for at least a couple of weeks in May after the shootings at Kent State. Nearly 5 million American students joined joined the student strike. Um, Basically, it's said that 80% of colleges experienced protests of some kind. You know, in, in Wisconsin alone, the University of Wisconsin alone, there's 27 fire bombings were reported. Um, the country is near revolution. I figured, I know somebody who was at school at Ohio State in May of 1970. It's my mom. So we're bringing my mom on the show briefly. Uh, and we're going to talk to Teresa about her experience when the school was shut down, how it affected her, what she remembers just from those couple of days at Ohio State after the Kent State shootings? What I remember about those first couple days in May before the school was closed down 
is that, uh, you know, you try to go to class, but making it across the oval without being tear gassed was problematic. Um, I was directing, as a student, I was directing uh, King Lear uh, on the amphitheater at Mirror Lake and during the middle of the rehearsal for that, for example, uh, the police came charging down the hill and, and, you know, we were all tear gassed. I remember being, uh, at the library and getting ready to leave the main library and then having to help pull people in who had been tear gassed. So it was crazy up there, uh, for a number of days before, the university closed down. And the option was that you could take the grade that you had at the time school closed down and you wouldn't have to take any final or any other test or turn in any other work. Or you could contact your professor and arrange to take a test so that maybe you could bring up a higher grade point. For me... I was just plain lucky at that point. I had straight A's in every class, so it doesn't take a lot to figure out what I did, which was very straightforward and very easy. Um, so that that was great because I got a four point and I didn't have to take any finals, I didn't have to study, and it was all over with. I'll tell you one thing that really sticks in my mind and that I can see clearly is walking from my apartment, which was on 8th Avenue, walking down Neal, uh, and just having to walk a phalanx of armed National Guardsmen uh, on both sides of the street, all the way down Neal Avenue till you got onto the main campus. And you did get used to it, but it was very different uh, to be walking to school and have armed soldiers on both sides of you, on both sides of the street. I think it can very fairly be argued that these protests helped bring the Vietnam War to a close earlier than maybe it would have been. Without the political pressure, you know, Bill cites the fact that Afghanistan's been going on for 17 years. But there's no political pressure on these leaders to end America's longest and what I believe to be a fruitless war, an unwinnable war, um, much like Vietnam. But what what a student protest, what can they accomplish today? I talked to David about, you know, what is an issue that he thinks can spark students, you know, obviously uh, off the beaten path a little bit, other than anti-Trump um, or, you know, this, this gun control, March for Our Lives issues we're doing now. We talked about student tuition. We're talking about college protests. I mean, I'm somebody who's paying student loans for for the foreseeable future. Um, And this wasn't the way it used to be. Tuition prices rise and rise. And if I was a a political figure today, this would be one of my bell cow issues. It doesn't have to be this way. My college is nearly $50,000 a year. It's outrageous. And it's, it's a debt trap, and we talked to David about it, um, and he got me fired up about it as well. And yet the colleges are also um, are debt machines. And the reason that student debt is 
has become so outrageous is because of the dwindling public resources that have been been sent to them. So it's a political issue, really, and it's also a matter of a, a kind of um, um, transfer of wealth from younger people to older people, and I think that's really unforgivable for us old sons of bitches, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and I'm not saying that... that, that um, Elderly health care should be jettisoned. I have a, my own sense um, is that we have a, a remarkably rich society that can afford both a proper public health care that ameliorates our keenest um, miseries and yet also makes uh, full education possible for our young people. They just they haven't figured out collectively that it's a political issue. Too many of them just see it as the way things are, and I think that it that I just have this maybe a rare moment of optimism for me because I'm usually pretty pessimistic that a, a number of them a kind of critical mass is building that understands that uh, they're getting screwed, and in this case, you know, it's not. It's not a, a movement for other people. It's not a movement for uh, marginalized uh, races. It's not a, a movement for marginalized sexualities. It's a movement for them, you know, and it's a very central issue in their lives. It's, it's making them delay uh, full adulthood. It's preventing them from, from uh, uh, accumulating the kind of wealth necessary even to buy a house. You know, and um, I think they ought to really be pissed about it. While I was at OSU, we did a great chart that showed the state share going this way, going down, tuition going up. The two lines crossed somewhere in the 90s, and now students are paying two-thirds of what it costs them. You know, the assumption was, yeah, students benefit, but society benefits as well. And I think I'm, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump, but when he talked about a rigged system... He hit on something, and I think once people catch who it's rigged for, which is the top one percent, yeah, and who Trump. it's rigged against <laughs> is everybody else, you may see a beginning of a start of a social movement. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rafer Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. He has fired the shot. He still has the gun. The gun is pointed at me right at this moment. Take a hold of his thumb and break it if you have to. Get his thumb. Going through the lanterns in November of 1963, and I knew it was coming, and I'm, I'm shifting through these pages electronically, and then that black headline, JFK, just 
hit me like that. And I, it made me, it just reproduced the feeling of what a shock that event was. And when you think about it, part of what made the 60s such an exciting period for the wrong reasons were these, sh every day, we interrupt this program to, you know, and it'd be some, you know, assassination or the war went wrong or... You're hanging by a thread? Building. Yeah. Something's going to go And wrong. there is, there, there was a feeling at the time, would the center hold? And boy, it came close to not. And, and as I write in the book, I think after the combination of what the National, Ohio National Guard did at Kent State, and then those self-declared radicals of Wisconsin who blew up the math building, I think the, the better nature of America looked into that abyss and said, we can't go there. And you started to see uh, kind of a, a pulling back. But Do you guys was, think that's the closest we've come to a revolution? I mean, yeah. since... Since 1865, 1866. I, I think that's true. Um, but I don't... Forces of order were going to win. Oh, of course. Yeah. I'm just saying, they won I'm just anyway. Saying, yeah, they, I'm saying, do you think that's the closest we came? Yeah, I'd, I'd say. I'd I say, mean, the, I'd the say, only... The I'd only, say May of 1970 was the closest. It looked like the wheels were coming. The yeah. only comparable moment is uh, the summer of 1919. Yeah. The other irony of this, I, I think David's right. The forces of order did win. You knew that was going to happen because they had the guns. <laughs> but the counter, the counterculture, captured the heart of middle. I, I remember in the seventies, what I'd go to like the Eastland Mall or something, and people would come in from rural parts of you know Licking County and that. But they'd have long hair. And, you know, here's here's yeah. the weird thing. So, the left one in culture, yeah. the right one in yeah. politics and economics. Yeah. And um, we're yeah. still there. Yeah, and we're yeah. still fighting about it. I like reading. Guys, our book recommendation is Bill Shakurdi, our guest book, Ohio University in the night or Ohio State University in the nineteen sixties. Published in 2016, it is an incredible, uh, incredible book that really looks at not just the university and the students, but also you know politics not just in in Ohio but across the country and how it builds up and builds up to that May 1970 5:30 p.m. on on May 6, 1970 when Ohio State closes, 1,500 National Guard, um, you know Highway Patrol police um, on the campus and they still can't keep control and they shut it down um, we it's really just a journey from from 1960 to from the quaint little Rose Bowl riots and the jaywalk riots to absolute battle royale on the streets you know we sit here this week on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King um, we didn't get into the civil rights part of the 60s uh, as much today but much like Kent State, we've already covered that in a previous episode. Um, so go back and, and listen to episode nine from last year, Ohio versus Jim Crow, about Ohio's role and Bill McCullough, the congressman's role in the passing of the Civil Rights, uh, Civil Rights Act and the Voters' Rights Act of 1965. Uh, great episode. Uh, go back and listen to that one to get that angle. Um, I want to thank Bill and David. They were awesome. Um, and I learn so much from those guys every time I, I, I talk to them. So uh, we'll definitely have to have them both back on. But, you know, David Steigerwald's a repeat guest, and, and he's the man. So much appreciate him bringing Bill on board. 
uh, and them sitting down and talking. So that's episode 12, guys, Ohio versus 60s. Um, next episode, we're going to be going back to the 1860s. We're going to be talking about Ohio versus South. Um, Lancaster, Ohio's own William Tecumseh Sherman. We'll talk about how he brought the Confederacy to its knees. Uh, we'll talk about his life. We'll talk about the Civil War um, and how he took on the South and brought total war. Um, and he is a very famous Ohioan and is a very, very multi-layered person, not just this kind of warmonger that people think uh, he, he really does have a lot of depth to him. And, and we'll talk about his life. And that'll be Ohio versus South. Uh, and that'll be our next episode. Guys, remember, check out YOP, the Rust Belt Takeover, at the end of April uh, 27th through the 29th. Don't forget to rate and review the show. Rate and review the show, please. On iTunes, it really helps us shoot up the charts. Um, and don't forget our live performance is going to be on that weekend of May 10th through the 13th, the Columbus Podcast Festival um, on Twitter, Columbus Podfest. And we will get you tickets and all that kind of information. Follow the, uh, the Facebook, but we're going to need our fans there for sure at the Short North Stage. Um, and we'll let you know about that uh, as more details come out, but they're announcing the lineup here. So thank you so much to the Columbus Podcast Festival for having us on. Um, and thank you guys for listening. This has been episode 12, Ohio versus 60s. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.